passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And uh, we are going to be continuing in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, as, as you're turning to 1 Samuel, I, uh, I want us to begin with a, a question that's actually quite relevant based off of um, what we've been talking about this morning, about uh, the glory of God. We sang glory uh, to God forever, talking about how God is at work and how we can be praying for uh, God at work, accomplishing His mission in, uh, in Japan. And um, I, I want us to consider if we ever feel ill-equipped for the mission that God has given to us. God has, has entrusted us with this impossible task, really, if it's, a, if it's left up to us, and that is to uh, reach the nations with the good news of, of Jesus. Last week, we uh, spent time celebrating the resurrection, the empty tomb. We didn't just celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection, but also from Jesus' resurrection, look forward to our resurrection one day. The, when Jesus returns, the hope that we have that we will be united with him with new bodies. And, and I just want you to imagine uh, years, thousands of years ago, when Jesus came back to life, he's meeting with his disciples, his disciples just overcome with joy that their friend, their teacher, their mentor, this person that they thought was dead, is now back to life. And then he entrusts these words to his disciples. It says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this band of disciples, this group that has spent a good chunk of their time with Jesus, completely missing the point, spent a lot of time actually arguing about who's the most impressive, the best among the twelve of them now has been entrusted with this global mission. And we might wonder how on earth are they going to accomplish it? And then we realize that that same mission has been entrusted to us as well. If we're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus calls us to the same mission, the risen king calls us to what he calls his great commission. Here at Crosswinds, we word it this way, reaching people with Jesus. And as we read there in the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, the good news is we're not left alone. That Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we are on mission with Jesus to tell people about the unfathomably good news of Jesus. And yet, I'll be honest, a lot of times I feel ill-equipped to share my faith. And I, I think through my head, well, maybe if, if I just knew a little bit more or, or if I'd been a Christian for a little bit longer or if I just spent a little bit more time getting to know these people so I had a better relationship with them, then I could share this good news. I could share Jesus with them. And there's, there's some truth to that, that we should always be growing in our faith. We should always be pursuing a deeper knowledge, a deeper trust in, a deeper relationship with Jesus, a better understanding of the gospel. And yet, at the same time, when we ask, how does God equip 
his people and his church for the mission that has been entrusted to them, we see in the Gospels, we see in the New Testament, that God has given us everything we need to accomplish the task that he has entrusted to his church. And in a weird way, that's a little bit of what this morning's text is about. This passage this morning, it's about God accomplishing his purposes through a rather suspect figure, that is King Saul. If you haven't been with us in 1 Samuel to this point, I just want to give you a, a brief 60-second overview of where we've been in this book so far. So 1 Samuel takes place about 3,000 years ago. The nation of Israel is in disarray. The primary argument of 1 Samuel is that because Israel doesn't have a king, everyone's going their own way. Everything is broken, and Israel desperately needs a king. But it's not just a king that they need. They need a king who's going to point them to the king of glory. They need a king who's going to point them to God himself. But then 1 Samuel goes even further because it doesn't just make a claim about a group of people 3,000 years ago, it also makes a claim about us too. That if we feel like our lives are in disarray and if we look around us and we're overwhelmed, we're just disillusioned with the chaos, the murky waters that we find ourselves living in, it's because we need a king. But not just any king. We need a king who will point us to the king of glory, God himself. And so 1 Samuel is the story of how Israel gets exactly that. that. They get this king who is going to point them to the true king, the king of glory, God seated on his throne. This chosen king who will make all things right is what 1 Samuel is all about. Of course, there's one problem. The people of Israel, they're on board with this idea of a king. They, they look around at all the nations and say, hey, we like what we see there. Well, let's, let's get ourselves one of these kings like the nations. Israel wants a king, but they want a king that they can use to replace God rather than a king who will point them to God. And that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel. A couple weeks ago, Palm Sunday, we looked at how God gave Israel exactly what they wanted. God gave Israel a king like the nations, King Saul. King Saul is not this guy who started off good and then just hit a rough patch and kind of stumbled across the finish line. We saw a couple weeks ago in 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 10, that King Saul, from the very beginning, is a suspect figure. He, he doesn't really want much to do, anything to do with the things of God. And we get to 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we ask this question, well, how, how is God going to use this man, this king, to accomplish his purposes? And that's what this morning's passage is all about. It breaks into three acts. We're going to look at each of those in turn. Uh, We're going to, as we go through these, I just want you to ask yourself this question. The the question um, in our sermon title, is this the chosen king? Is Saul the chosen king, the one who is going to make all things right? But before we jump into this text, let's go ahead and pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we rejoice that you do not leave us as orphans. And yet at the same time, we confess that oftentimes we feel ill-equipped for the task that you have entrusted to us. This morning, God, as we consider your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us 
through this passage. Thank you, God, that you hear us, and it's because of the risen and reigning Jesus. We ask that you would bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's this abrupt trans- transition that we see from the end of chapter 10 into chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 10 ends with Saul being anointed the king, appointed the king by lots among the in, uh, in front of the entire nation, and then he returns to his hometown of Gibeah. He goes home to Gibeah with this retinue of faithful leaders. There's some people who are detracting from his rule and reign. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 11, and, and rather than having this picture of this kingly authority, this kingly ruler, we see it seems like nothing has happened. Let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 4. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if no one is to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. We see that even though Saul has been appointed king publicly, it appears that there hasn't been any movement in establishing him as a, as a ruler, as this person of, of authority here at the beginning of chapter 11. There's this unknown amount of time that has passed between chapter 10 and now where we are at in chapter 11. And chapter 11 begins with trouble facing the people of Israel in Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead, let's go ahead and throw that map up here. Jabesh-Gilead is located to the east of the Jordan River. You can see it at the top of this map. And Gibeah, where Saul is located, is in the bottom part of this map. The green area is Ammon, the people who are attacking the land of Jabesh-Gilead. Actually, if you look at some of the other historical sources about this time, some of the traditions say that the people of Ammon were actually terrorizing this entire area of Israel. They were attacking all of these places, and and Jabesh-Gilead was the last place to hold out from the attack of Nahash the Amorites. And and in this moment, we see that the the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they're they're ready to, to just surrender, to, to give up to the Ammonites. And, and granted, this would probably be uh, understandable to a, a superior military force. And yet, if we look at it in the context of the Bible, this is a rejection, another rejection from the people of Israel of God. God has promised them multiple times that they will not be victorious by having a superior military fighting force. But they will be victorious because God himself will fight for them. And in our time in 1 Samuel, we've seen that that's actually the case. That in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when Israel tries to manipulate God to to get uh, what they want out of him, they're they're slaughtered, They're, they're completely taken over by the people of Philistia. And yet when the people return to the Lord, they pray to the Lord, they are given this great victory because God himself will fight for his people. And so as we see here in these first four verses, this surrender of the people of Jabesh-Gilead is not just the setting 
to help us understand what's about to take place. It's another picture of yet another way that Israel is choosing to reject God rather than trusting in him for deliverance. And so they approach Nahash and say, hey, we surrender. We'll go ahead, make a treaty with you. We would love to to be subservient to you, and yet Nahash won't let them off that easily. He doesn't just want to conquer Jabesh Gilead. He actually wants to bring disgrace and humiliation, not just on Jabesh Gilead, but on all the people of Israel, according to this text. In ancient Near Eastern culture, whenever you would make a treaty, it would involve the the slaughter of an animal. And you would cut this animal in half, and you'd put half of the animal on one side and half of the animal on another side, and then one of the two parties would walk through that slaughtered animal and say, as a a way of saying, you know what, If, if I break this covenant, if I break this treaty, then I will become like this animal that has been slaughtered. We actually see this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34 gives us this picture. It says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So as a part of this covenant making, this treaty making that the people of that time would make, they would invoke a curse on themselves by cutting apart an animal. But then we get to this story of of what Nahash says. And the men of Jabesh, they say, we'd like to to make a covenant with you. The language in Hebrew literally is, we would like to cut a treaty with you. It's referring to the, the cutting apart of an animal. But rather than making a covenant, this, this treaty, through the sacrifice of an animal, Nahash says, no, 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 no. We're not going to cut an animal apart. I want you to cut your eyes out as a way of showing that you are subservient to me, as a way of bringing humiliation upon you. I want you to play the parts of the animal in this treaty that you will make with me. And we see his, his hatred for the people of God here. Uh, nothing's going to give him greater pleasure than just heaping humiliation, mocking the people of God, and, and really mocking God himself through this widespread humiliation. So cut out your eyes. Don't cut, a, cut apart an animal. And so while the people of Jabesh Gilead, they're ready to surrender, they don't have trust and confidence in God that he will deliver them, this is a little too much for them. They understand what is being said here. And, and so, verse 3, they say, hey, well, give us seven days' respite. We'll send messengers throughout all of Israel. Maybe someone will come to our rescue. I think this is really funny that Nahash actually agrees to these terms. Uh, and, and some people say, well, this is a reason why we can say this, this story is made up. I don't think that's the case. Nahash is so arrogant, and his, his focus is on this desire to humiliate not just Jabesh Gilead, but all of Israel, that he says, you know what, go ahead. Send messengers. Find someone to deliver you. And when Israel musters an army and comes up against me, I'll slaughter them too. His focus is on complete humiliation and disgrace of the people of God. And so messengers are sent through all of Israel. They're searching for a deliverer. They're searching for a savior. And it's notable that in verse 3, they send messengers throughout all of Israel. It's not just to Gibeah. It's not just to Saul, their appointed king. 
And that gives us a little bit of insight into Saul's status at this moment. That the king that people ask for has been appointed and yet they don't go to him for help in this moment. God's people need a, a deliverer. They need a savior and they don't have any idea where that savior will come from. We don't know how many messengers are sent out, but some of those messengers end up in Gibeah, Saul's hometown. If you're familiar with the, the book of Judges, you'll notice or you'll remember that there's this, there's this family connection between Jabesh-Gilead and Gibeah. Judges 19 through 21 tell us of one of the worst times in Israel's history. It's the low point of Israel's history. There's this civil war that breaks out in Israel because of the immorality of the people of Gibeah. And all of the tribes gather together and say, we have to, we have to put an end to this immorality. And all of the tribes, all of the cities join together except for Jabesh-Gilead. How does Benjamin, how does Gibeah repay the people of Jabesh-Gilead? Well, they go off and they kidnap 400 women from Jabesh-Gilead, marry them, and now all of a sudden we have this messy relationship of these people who are intermarried between the tribe of Benjamin and the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And so it makes all the sense in the world that messengers are sent to Gibeah from Jabesh-Gilead because they have distant family in Gilead. But when they get there, they're not met with uh, this, this uprising of people who are going to go and, and deliver their brothers and sisters in Jabesh-Gilead. They're instead met with, verse 4, loud weeping. That takes us to the second part of our story. And we see even though Jabesh and, and Israel, they, they're not willing to rely on God, they're not willing to turn to God to deliver them, God still has mercy on his people. That God still has a plan to save his people because God keeps his covenant commitments to his people even when his people don't keep theirs. Let's pick up in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind his oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. At last we see Saul, our king, the king of Israel. And what has he been doing while Israel is languishing before her enemies? Well, apparently he's been working on his farm. He's working on the farm, and yet God has this plan to deliver his people, to give his people just a glimpse of what he intends for a king to be. And so he orchestrates things for Saul to be arriving in Gibeah right as everyone is crying, is, is weeping over the news from Jabesh that they're about to be destroyed by Ammon. And verse 6 is this important verse. Because we see in verse 6, it shows us that God is going to do something. He is doing something to accomplish his purposes through Saul. In spite of all of Saul's faults, in spite of all of his failures, God won't let those stop him from delivering his people through his king. Notice verse 6, how similar it is to what God would do during the time of Judges. Verse 6, again, it says this, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul 
when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Compare that with what we see during the time of the judges with the judge Samson. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Three times as we're reading the story of Samson in the book of Judges, we see this phrase, the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. And here we see the exact same thing is happening with Saul. Saul is just like Samson before him. He's this imperfect figure, a very flawed man, but that's not going to stop God from using him to accomplish his purposes to save his people. So the Spirit rushes upon Saul, and we see this immediate change from this man that we saw in chapter 10, verse 22, is hiding among the baggage. He doesn't even want to to be seen by others. This man, all of a sudden, is now acting like a king. As a king, he, he conscripts an army. He, he takes one of his oxen and he cuts it up and, and sends it throughout the entire territory of Israel and says, if you don't come to this summons, your oxen will be exactly like these if you don't join me in delivering our brothers in Israel. Now, just a side note on that. I mentioned earlier, there's a, there's a couple parallels or connections here with the book of Judges. One of those being this connection between Jabesh Gilead and uh, Gibeah in, in Judges 20, 19 through 21. What Saul does here is very similar to what takes place in that exact same story to rouse the people of Israel into action. A man in those chapters takes his dead concubine and cuts her up, this horrible moment, and sends her throughout all of Israel, her parts, throughout all of Israel as a way to rouse the people of Israel to civil war. Here we see Saul, as the king, does something similar, but he doesn't do it in a sinful way. He doesn't do it to to invoke civil war. He does it to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. Remember what I said at the beginning of our time together, that 1 Samuel is about Israel's need for a king. And here we see what happens when Israel finally has a king. Something that was once bad has now started to become a good thing. God is using his king. And after a few days, Israel gathers together at this place called Bezek. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were about 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Let's go ahead and put that map up again if we can. Notice that that Bezek is now located uh, in the northern part, just across the river Jordan from Jabesh Gilead. So the people of Israel are gathering together over the next couple days. Troops are pouring in from all of Israel to prepare for battle. Now our translation here, the ESV, and I think most English translations, say 330,000 people gathered for battle here in Bezek. The tricky thing about this is the word in Hebrew, the word for thousand, can also mean groups of an unknown size. So it could be translated as as 330,000. It also could just be 330 groups. And we don't know how many are in each of these groups, but they gather together. So it's actually possible that the Bible is saying that there's 330 military groups that gather together in Bezek for battle. 
And these military companies, they're made up of, of various sizes. And remember, these are, this is a militia. And so as, as the messengers go to these different towns, these different villages, they say, hey, we need, we need people to go to Bezek to deliver the people of Jabesh Gilead. And some of the larger cities, they have 100 people show up. Some of the smaller cities and villages, they may have 30 people show up. And, that, and you can kind of see where, where my interpretation of this, uh, what, of this passage is. I'm not saying that the Bible is wrong, but in the tricky process of translation, I think there might be a better way of translating what we see here. In any case, what we see is that Israel shows up in force. That's, that's the clear thing, whether it's 330,000, 330 groups. And all of Israel is contributing to this army, this militia, from their king. And when it's all said and done, God's spirit upon Saul and the dread of the Lord leads to this massive gathering, this massive army that the Lord is going to use to accomplish his purposes of deliverance. Let's look at verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to, to the people of Ammon, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came down into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So when Saul gathers his, his army at Bezek, he, he sends word to Jabesh and says, hey, you know what, deliverance is coming. It'll, it'll be here. We will, we will have delivered you by noon tomorrow. And the people of Jabesh, they're glad, and, and there's something that actually... Um, our English doesn't translate very well. Um, when it says that tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, this is the message they give to the people of Ammon, um, there's a lot of ambiguity here. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it, it says, tomorrow we will come out to you. And that can, of course, mean we will surrender to you tomorrow. Or it could mean we will come out to you to join in battle with our brothers who are attacking you tomorrow. And the people of Ammon, they just assume, well, they're going to surrender and by doing that, they actually seal their doom. That night, Saul splits his army into three groups. They begin this about 15-mile journey to Jabesh under cover of darkness, somewhere between 2 and 6 a.m. That's the morning watch. That's when they attack the people of Ammon. And the victory is so great, as we saw there in verse 11, that when the survivors flee, there, there, there aren't enough of them to go together. Not even two run together. So great is God's deliverance of his people through his king that he is equipped to deliver his people. And this is the picture that we have of what God's king does. Delivering his people. And the people of Israel, they see this and, and they're riding on cloud nine. because they, they just can't believe what just took place, what Saul did for them. They begin to wonder, is there anything Saul can't do? Saul, you are awesome. Let's go ahead and, and just, you know, sing your praises, Saul. And that's when we get to our third part of our story this morning. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, 
Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the victory is great. God has delivered his people, and yet the people give all the glory and all the credit to Saul. And they're actually out for blood. They're so offended that people were talking bad about Saul at the end of chapter 10 that they say, who dared to badmouth Saul when he was appointed king? Bring them out. We'll do the exact same thing to them that we just got done doing to the Ammonites. But here in verse 13, we see Saul's finest hour. It's not in mustering an army. It's not in delivering his people. It's what he says in verse 13. This is the high point. Verse 13 is the high point of Saul's entire life. It says this. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Notice the two parts of Saul's response here to the people. He has this this horizontal mercy and this vertical praise. He shows horizontal mercy to his detractors. He's still in the spirit, and the king of Israel follows the way of the king of glory, showing mercy to people who have rejected him. He's showing us what God does with us by having mercy on people who badmouth him, who turn their backs on him. Saul is pointing us to God by showing mercy to his enemies. And we look at the New Testament and we see that we also, before Christ, were enemies of God. And yet God shows us mercy. But he doesn't just show horizontal mercy, he also shows vertical praise. Notice the people, they're busy, they're patting themselves on the back for what they just did to the people of Ammon. They're, they're thinking back to what they wanted from a king, all the way back in chapter 8 says this, and the people said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations, and that the king may judge us, and notice this last phrase, and go out before us and fight our battles. So Israel's desire for a king is for this man to be on a white horse, leading the army, bringing them victory and deliverance, and that's what Saul appears to do. It's like, hey, we were right. We got exactly what we wanted. Who needs God to fight our battles? We got Saul. But in verse 13, Saul kills that talk immediately. And he gives glory to God. He says, it's, it's not Saul who has brought deliverance, the salvation to Israel. God has brought this great salvation to Israel. 
This is, this is Saul's finest hour. If you were here uh, several weeks ago when we were in chapter 8, we saw that at the heart of Israel's request for a king is that rather than having a king point them to God, they wanted a king to replace God. They looked at their lives, they looked at their history and how God had interacted with them for the centuries since he had called them out of Egypt and they said, you know what God, you haven't done a very good job of taking care of us. You haven't done a very good job of leading us. You haven't been a very good king for us and so we want a king like the nations. We want to replace you with a king who will take care of us. But also that same week when we were in chapter 8, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 talks about God's original plan for a king. And while Israel wanted a king to replace God, God's plan for a king, he says, you know, kings aren't bad. I want you to have a king who will point you to God. And that's exactly what Saul is doing in this moment. He's not a king who's replacing God. He's a king who is pointing the people to God. And Samuel, he's present at this moment. He, he seizes this moment. He says, hey, you know, this is, why, this is why I was so upset you were asking for a king. You were trying to replace God. You were putting an idol up. And now you finally get it because of what Saul is doing. And so he seizes this moment and says, hey, now is the time for us to renew the kingdom. Let's go back to Gilgal. And there we will renew the kingdom. This phrase, renew the kingdom, is a way of saying, you know what, let's take this thing that you asked for that was wrong, a king, to replace God, and let's, let's make it subservient to God's actual desire for his kingdom, for his king. Let's renew the kingdom. Let's make it right because it was wrong to this point. Now, Israel heads to Gilgal, and this is an important location Again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, as Israel enters into the promised land in the book of Joshua, they, they cross through the Jordan River, just kind of like they do when they're crossing the Red Sea. They, they cross through on dry ground. And the first place they camp when they finally enter the promised land is Gilgal. And there at Gilgal, they set up a memorial saying, this is how God has taken care of us. This is how God has delivered us. This is how God has provided for us. This is how God has shown that he is faithful. And so Samuel says, let's go back to Gilgal. Let's remind ourselves that God has always been faithful, always been worth trusting. Joshua chapter 4. The people came up out of the Jordan and they encamped at Gilgal. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what does this memorial mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And Samuel says, there is no better way for us to remind ourselves of who God is, of the truth that God is king, than by doing it at Gilgal, a place of God's faithfulness, a testament of God's glory, not just to us, 
but to all the nations on the earth. And we come to the end of this chapter and we see there's joy. The people are rejoicing. They're like, yeah, you know what, Samuel, you're right. We're going to return to the Lord. We're going to renew the kingdom. We're going to do this the right way. We want a king not to replace God. We want a king who's going to point us to God. And everyone's rejoicing. And here we get a little bit of a glimpse. Everything is right when God's king points his people to God himself. And that's how the passage ends. And we come to this end of this chapter, and, and I'm asking, you know, what we, we asked at the beginning, is this God's chosen king? Is Saul God's chosen king? And if, you've, if you're familiar with the rest of 1 Samuel, if you are here two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 9 and 10, the answer, of course, is no. And yet here in chapter 11, we see very clearly that Saul points us to the chosen king. That King Saul in chapter 11 is acting like Jesus will act in his life. Here in his finest hour, Saul is showing us what we need from a king. Not someone who will replace God. Not someone who will reject God, but someone who will lead us to his throne. Now hear me really clearly. This is not about politics. It's not about the United States government or our presidents or our governors. It's not about any politics at all because as the people of God, we have that king. We have the king that Saul is pointing us toward here in this chapter. We have that king who points us to the king of glory. And he does so perfectly. Do you see how Saul points us to Jesus? Saul is equipped by the Spirit. And he saves God's people and points them to the true king of glory, God himself. And Jesus the reigning and forever king of God's people, ministers his entire life equipped by the Spirit. At the beginning of his ministry, notice how his ministry starts in John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. While Saul has temporarily been equipped to accomplish the purposes of God, this specific task, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, is perfectly obedient and faithful to God his entire life. What does God equip Saul for? In 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see it's to work a great salvation for his people, to deliver his people. How much more does Jesus, our King, do that for us? Jesus, in, in John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the King who will, who will save you, who will bring you this salvation. You come to me and you will be saved. 
Jesus says that this is his mission, not judgment, but deliverance. John 12, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the great hope of humanity, that God has sent us a king, a perfectly faithful king, who is equipped by the Spirit to bring salvation, who will not condemn us, but will save us. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see that in all of this, He's equipped by the Spirit, working this great deliverance for those who would come to him, join his family. We see that Jesus' mission is to give glory to his Father, the King of glory. Jesus, hours before the cross, he looks over his entire life. He looks at what he's about to do on the cross, this great deliverance he is about to accomplish. And he says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You see how 1 Samuel 11 is pointing us to Jesus? 1 Samuel 11 is telling us this. It's this message that ultimately culminates in King Jesus. It's this, the Lord equips his king to deliver his people. That's 1 Samuel 11 in a nutshell. Someone asks you, what is 1 Samuel 11 about? It's this, the Lord equips his king to deliver his people. That's what he does with King Saul. That's what he does with Jesus. So much more, so much greater, but there's more. Because of what King Jesus has done, it's not just King Jesus who has the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task that God has given to him. Now, Because of Jesus' deliverance, because of Jesus' victory on the cross, anyone who believes in him is given access to God through that exact same Spirit. We began our time this morning asking if you ever felt ill-equipped for what God has asked of you. And here at last we see that because of the work of King Jesus delivering his people, that the key to accomplishing the task that God has entrusted to us, to his church, to his people, it is this. In the big story of the Bible, this passage isn't just saying the Lord equips his king to deliver his people. It's saying the Lord equips his king to deliver his people and as servants of the king, he has equipped us to accomplish his purposes. That because of what Jesus has done, the victory that King Jesus brings, the salvation that King Jesus brings, the faithfulness of King Jesus, those who are servants of the King have been equipped, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, uniting us with Christ. We have all that we need for life and godliness, as Second Peter tells us. 
you feel ill-equipped for the task that God has given to you, a task to make disciples of the nations, a task to be reaching people with Jesus. He hasn't just said, here's your task, good luck, go for it. But as we saw in Matthew chapter 28, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's given you all that you need to accomplish the task, to finish the mission. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But if you are in Christ Jesus, his spirit dwells within you. And as a servant of the king, you have everything you need to accomplish the purpose that God has for you in your life. This passage inspires us to worship. I, I look at, at Saul here and my eyes are just turned to Jesus. Like Saul does this great thing and yet the, it's so clear in 1 Samuel chapter 11 that man, how much greater is Jesus than Saul? Saul, even in his finest hour, is just a shadow of the glory and the majesty and the beauty of this faithful king, Jesus. And worship certainly encompasses all that we, we sing here, say here on, on Sunday mornings, but it's so much more than that. It, it encompasses all of life. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15 this task of how we can glorify God. It says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And then, by bearing fruit, you prove to be my disciples. To be a fruitful person. To see the transformative power of the Spirit in your life on display. That's how God receives glory in this world. What if we were a people who, who bore fruit in every area of our lives? What if the gospel transformed the way that we work, the way that we interact with our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or with our kids or with our coworkers, anyone that we come into contact with? What if we took it seriously to be on mission with Jesus to accomplish the task that he has entrusted to us, but also that he has equipped us for through the power of his spirit? The Lord has equipped you as a servant of the king to accomplish the task, accomplish his purposes that he has for you in your life. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. What if we were a people who bear fruit, using our lives as an opportunity for worship? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 1 Samuel 11, and I thank you that it points us to you, Jesus. What a gift that is. Help us to be people who bear fruit, that live lives of fruitfulness and faithfulness. Help us to take seriously the mission that you've entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.